The reading is from Nehemiah chapter 5, and the heading is Nehemiah Helps the Poor. Now the, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give, to, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like this. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. 
Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Well, let's pray. Father God, as we read together some challenging words in Scripture, we pray above everything we'll hear your voice. We thank you, Lord God, for the challenge that we see in your words. We thank you, Lord God, for the way that it speaks to us and encourages us and sometimes points out those things in our lives which need to change. And Lord God, above everything today, may your will be done here in this church and in our lives individually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you've probably gathered by now that the story of Nehemiah is about a group of people who come together to rebuild the broken walls and the broken city of Jerusalem. And in the first couple of chapters, you'll remember what we saw is God really laying a burden on Nehemiah's heart for the city of Jerusalem and everything which is going on there. It's a burden which is so big that he has moved to action. Then in chapter 3, you'll remember that Nehemiah gathers a team around him and he puts this team in strategic places around the city and around the wall in order to get the job done. Last week, Zoe opened up chapter 4 to us and we looked at how the people faced discouragement and they faced opposition and they faced setback. And really, that's a pattern which continues to about midway through chapter 6. And what we see today is that the Israelites didn't merely face outward oppression, but they also faced inward strife. And that threatened to disrupt and disengage the task that they were called to like nothing else. And as the people of God here today and watching online and engaging with this particular message, we have to study God's word together and we have to ask ourselves the question, what is God saying to me individually? And what is God saying to us collectively as a church in this year, in this COVID-filled year, where everything has been turned upside down and on its head? What is the challenge God wants to give to us today? One of my guilty pleasures, and I'm not sure I should admit this because we're obviously streaming this on the internet and it's going to be there forever and a day, but one of my guilty pleasures is I love to watch EastEnders. And not only do I love to watch EastEnders, I have to admit, I am one of those people at times who will go on the internet and read the spoilers for what's coming up in the days and the weeks to come, because I like to know what's going to happen in the show. And at risk of spoiling the story for you today of Nehemiah, let me let you in on a little secret. The wall gets built. The city is restored. God's will comes to pass. There is a successful end to the story. And just as the wall got rebuilt, as Christians, there is a spoiler that we can be let into today as well. We can be totally and utterly sure that one day 
Jesus Christ is going to return. But he's not coming back to rebuild a wall. When Jesus Christ comes back, it's to renew the heavens and the earth and to make all things new. That is going to happen. And the challenge for us as the people of God, as we look at this story, is how do we see that this people, all those years ago, persevered through the trials and the struggles and the tribulations that they faced in Jerusalem? And how does that speak into our lives today? Jesus is coming back. The story, the end of the story has been revealed. And what are we to do as we wait for Jesus to come back? Well, we're to be a people who live faithfully on this earth Seeing his kingdom come, his will being done in a time where there is struggle and there is strife and there is tribulation and there is heartache. A bit more context for us as we look at chapter 5 together today. Generally, when a country opposes another country or they want to make trouble for another country or they want to go to war with another country, often the first thing that they'll do is they'll cut off the trade supplies to that particular country. We see it happen all the time today, don't we, in this day and age, when a country like Russia or North Korea or Iran does something which seemingly antagonizes the West, what is the first response? They'll put sanctions on those countries. They'll cut off the trade supplies to those countries. They'll stop vital supplies getting through to those countries in the hope that in taking that kind of action, they'll force a particular country to rethink their attitude and rethink their strategies and rethink their actions. And in some ways, that is exactly what is going on here in Israel at this time. Trade routes with other countries are being shut down and essential supplies weren't getting through. Also, you'll remember uh, from last week that in order to deal with the outside threats which were coming in, Nehemiah had to reorganize the people on the wall. And we read that some people were stationed on the wall day and night in order to deal with the threats which were coming their way. And remember the sermon from a couple of weeks ago, those people who were building the wall weren't necessarily skilled bricklayers. They hadn't done this for a living for their entire lives. They were ordinary people from everyday walks of life. Some of those people on the wall would have been farmers. Now, The problem with having farmers on a wall day and night is that when a farmer is on a wall day and night, he cannot therefore go and look after his farm and tend to his crops. So he's on the wall day and night, but his farm is becoming overgrown. And as his farm is becoming overgrown, the food is not getting sorted. And what happens? There is no food, there's no trade links, and famine begins to come to the people. And as a result, these people face not only outward oppression, but they face hard times from within. And that makes disunity and discord arise among the people. And that really did have a potential far greater impact to derail the whole project than anyone outside telling them they couldn't do the job. The people, as a result of the things that they were facing from within, started to treat each other extremely badly. And one of The most horrific outcomes that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5 is that some of the wealthy Jews of the day looked at the situation and they looked at the poor who were being exploited in this situation and they thought to themselves, we can make a swift pound or two out of this. We can bulk up our bank balance because of this. We can make ourselves even more comfortable as a result of the situation that we find ourselves in today. And they basically start exploiting the poorest members of the community. 
We read, we're remortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still, others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, Scripture is very clear about how a Jew was meant to treat a fellow Jew. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, for example, you shall not lend interest to your brother, interest on money, interest on victuals, interest on anything that is lent for interest. In Leviticus chapter 25, it goes into more detail. It says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, you shall support him. The fact of the matter is, God calls his people to live in a radically countercultural way, not a it's all about me kind of mentality, not it's okay if me and my own are looked after, but actually something totally different. We're not called to live how the world does, but we're called to conduct ourselves in a way which points people to an awesome and generous and gracious God. And the question that we need to consider together today as we look at this particular passage is a simple one. How are we, as the Church of Jesus Christ in 2020, called to live in a way which points people to an awesome and gracious and generous God? I wonder what the outcries against the church would be today. And I'm not talking about our congregation here. I'm talking about the church worldwide. I wonder what people would look at when they saw the church and what they would actually define as the church as its good points and its bad points what would be the thing the fundamental thing that people had a wonder against the church i wonder too often if it's that tag of being hypocritical because they look at us at times and they they hear a message of love but what they see at times is something totally and utterly different by the way we treat one another the bible is very clear about how we should treat one another as the people of God here in 2020. Galatians 6 verse 10 says this, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially those in the household of faith. Do good to all people, but especially those in the household of faith. Why especially those in the household of faith? Surely we need to look after the outsider first. Surely we need to look after those who don't know Jesus first. We're called to show love and grace and mercy to the outsider. We're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. But what Paul wants to see here, he wants the Galatians to see, is that the way that we behave towards one another has a direct impact on how we reach a community. In a world where family can mean hurt and pain and heartache and separation, when God's people live in a loving and generous and grace-filled way towards one another, it speaks to a world where family means hurt, that there's another way to live, that there's a God who loves them, and they can be part of a family which holds them and cares for them. It points to a world which is different and a world which is better. When we get our behaviour right towards one another, It points towards a God in heaven. The problem is, however, 
all too often we fall into the trap that the Jews fell into in Nehemiah chapter 5. We have this very consumeristic mindset, don't we? And let's be honest, lockdown has brought out even more of a consumeristic mindset in us. If I don't like the worship of a church, I'll switch over and find another church. If the preacher says something I don't agree with, I'll just turn him off today. If I don't really fancy it, I won't bother. We have a consumeristic mindset, whether we like it or not. We have, all too often, a mindset which is take, 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 rather than give, give, give. And I'm simply highlighting the fact this morning that how easy it is for us to fall into this trap. We can look at these people and say, honestly, how on earth could you treat someone like that? But all too often, we do the same thing. We as the people of God today in 2020 are called to fully embrace one another and do good to all, but especially those in the household of believers. Because when we get it right, it points to a dying and hurting world that there is a God in heaven who loves them and cares for them. The challenge today is how are you and how am I today acting towards our brothers and our sisters in Christ today? The Bible is very clear about how we should behave towards one another. We're called to love one another. We're called to be devoted to one another. We're called to honour one another. We're called to live in harmony with one another. We're called to accept one another. We're called to instruct one another. We're called to greet one another. We're called to agree with one another. We're called to serve one another. We're called to bear with one another. We're called to be kind and compassionate towards one another. We're called to submit to one another. We're called to forgive one another. We're called to teach and admonish one another. We're called to encourage one another. We're called to spur one another on to good works and deeds. We're called to not slander one another. We're called to live in harmony with one another. We're called to offer hospitality to one another. We're called to be humble towards one another. I could go on. This is what scripture tells us about how we should behave towards one another. You see, when we choose to follow Jesus, there are some things thrown into the bargain that we don't get a say about. God became our father. That's great news. You know, my real dad left home when I was four or five, and my mum ended up remarrying. And it's fair to say that over the years, I had a pretty rocky relationship with my stepfather. And growing up, I remember hanging out with my wider family, and in particular, seeing my cousins, and seeing how my cousins interacted with my uncle, their father. And it was just a relationship of love. And I I remember looking at that relationship and and feeling so envious of that relationship, because I never had that with my, my biological father, and I didn't really have it with my stepfather either. And it's something I yearned for and craved for. But God entered my heart and he changed my life. He fulfilled the longings and desires that I had within me to have a dad who was proud of me, who loved me and accepted me. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room or the only one who is watching this message today who has had a rocky relationship when it comes to paternal fathers. They didn't have the relationship that they wished they had. But the The good news is God can come into that situation and totally and utterly radically change that situation. But here's the thing. When we're adopted into the family of God, there's another side to the bargain. Because not only do we get God as our father, but we also get fellow Christians as our brothers and sisters. Now, you choose God 
You come before him. He chooses us and we choose him. But here's the thing. You don't choose your brothers and sisters in Christ, just like in any normal family. Your family is your family. You can't get away from that. You can't hide from that. You can't deny that. And the command of Scripture today, out of all of those, love, uh, those one another commandments, the command which stands out more than anything is the command to love one another. Now, that's not a radical idea, is it? Let's be honest. If you have been involved in church for any length of time, you would have heard countless sermons on the fact that we're called to love one another. That's just a standard message that a preacher pulls out, isn't it? We are called to love one another. That's what the Bible says. But yet, so often, the church of Jesus Christ is so bad at it. We're so bad at loving one another. We don't disagree well. We hold grudges against one another. We hang on to hurt and pain that other people have caused us. We end up gossiping about our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, I don't want to be harsh today, but let me call something out this morning. I've been pastor of this church probably not even 18 months up until this stage. And seven months of that have probably been in lockdown, but we haven't been able to see each other. But I have had several conversations during that time with people in the church who have said something like, so-and-so has really hurt me in the past. Okay, what have you done about that? Have you forgiven them? No, I haven't forgiven them. I just ignore them, and I'm carrying on, holding on to the pain. You see, our church is big enough to be able to do that when we're all together, isn't it? We can sit over one side, and someone we really don't like, or we've got a grudge against, or has hurt us, can sit over the other side, and two ships can pass in the night, and we don't really have to deal with the things which are going on inside. But let me tell you something. That disrupts the witness of Jesus Christ. That kind of attitude stops us being effective in reaching out to a world who so desperately needs Jesus. How can we tell the world about a God who loves them if we don't even love one another? Church, we've got to change our attitudes. We have got to change our focus. We have got to be a people who not only want to reach out with a radical love, but reach within with a radical love. So let me ask you today, church, is there someone within our congregation at the moment that you've got an issue with? If there is, today is the day to sort that issue out. Phone them, text them, see them, if you're allowed to because of the rule of six. Go round there, whatever, I don't know what it is, but do something about it. We can't live in a way where we say we love God and we want to see other people come to know Jesus, yet we hate our brother. I want to tell you a story this morning. So the pastor from Buenos Aires in Argentina a guy called Juan Carlos Ortiz. And he was a pastor of a large evangelical church. And one Sunday, he prepared a sermon on loving one another. He prayed over the sermon. He'd gone over the sermon. He knew what he was going to say. He finally crafted the words that he was going to use. He really believed it was God's word for the day. And as he got out of his chair to preach, the Lord spoke to him. And this was the conversation that he had. How many sermons have you preached on the topic of loving one another? Don't know, Lord, he responded. Maybe a dozen or more. And how many times have you exhorted the congregation in other sermons to love 
one another. Don't know, Lord, maybe a dozen or more also, he said. Has it done any good? That conversation with God ended the moment Pastor Ortiz stood in the pulpit. The Lord's words were ringing in his ears and he thought to himself, I've preached dozens of sermons on love and what good has it done? The congregation was sitting there. They were waiting for the pastor to speak. The reality is the congregation were looking after their own interests and it was such a big church, people within it barely knew one another. Juan Carlos stood silently in the pulpit. His congregation waited for him to begin. And Pastor Ortiz began his sermon, and he began it with the words, love one another. And then he went and he sat down. People looked at one another as if they'd missed something. They were accustomed to a sermon of being nearly an hour. Praise God, hope that I don't go on for an hour, eh? Not three seconds. The congregation didn't know what to do that day. And after what seemed like an eternity, Pastor Ortiz walked back up to the pulpit and he positioned himself in the pulpit again and the congregation positioned themselves waiting for hear his words and for him to deliver his message. And he stood there again and he said the words, love one another. And then he went and he sat back down. Heads at this point began to turn. Some began to murmur. No one knew what to do. Pastor Ortiz waited again, and then he walked back up to the pulpit one more time. And he waited for the congregation to settle. And then for a third time, he said the words, love one another. Then he returned to his chair, and he sat back down. By this time, there was a stirring through the congregation. People were beginning to talk to one another. People were beginning to ask what the pastor was on about, why he wasn't preaching his normal sermon, and what was going on. And finally, an elder of the church stood up, and he spoke, and he said, I think I understand what Pastor Ortiz means. He wants me to love you. And he points to someone in the pew behind him. But how can I love you if I don't even know you? With that, he got down from the stage and he went over and he introduced himself to the person that he had pointed at that he'd not met before. Suddenly, there was a murmuring all over the congregation. Phone numbers began to be exchanged. Dinner invitations were being extended. Arrangements were being made for financial assistance. Before the service ended, someone raised enough money for bus tickets so a family could return to their village. Another man arranged for employment for a man who was out of work, and someone else was offered an apartment for their homeless family. The most powerful sermon that this man ever preached was simply three little words, love one another. Learning to love one another, and I mean really love one another, is the most powerful thing that we can ever possibly do because it reflects Jesus. God loved the world so much that he gave the most precious thing that he had, his only begotten son, so that you and I in our messed up and our broken state could be free. And loving one another is a response to a God who loves us with an everlasting love. We read these words in 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Dear friends, 
Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Coming back to our text in Nehemiah, Nehemiah saw the plight of Jews at the hands of other Jews and he became angry. He approaches those who were causing the issue and graciously confronts them. He says to the people, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? He says to the people, do you actually know what you're doing? Do you fear God? The problem was that people had too much fear for people and not enough fear for God. They wanted to be just like the other nations around them at the expense of their brothers and sisters. Nehemiah's other motivation are the taunts of the people towards God because of what is going on. You know, when the church begins to act not like the church should, who are the first people to notice how the church is acting? It's the world. People look at the church and they see how we behave towards one another and they say that's how they behave I don't want anything to do with their gods so what are the people to do well after confronting the problem Nehemiah then leads them to repentance verse 11 tells us this return to them this very day their fields their vineyards their olive orchards and their houses, and a percentage of the money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And a challenge for us today, as the Church of Jesus Christ, in this year, in this day and age, is that we need to recognise at times that we can all be selfish, and I include myself in that, that we can all be self-centred. We can all look after our own interests at the expense of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we too need to come before an awesome and holy God in reverent fear and confess before him. God is gracious to forgive and he allows us to start again. We heard it in the psalm at the beginning today, church, didn't we? That he is compassionate, he is slow to anger. So, church... Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus again. Let us take our example from the master. Our ultimate aim is to be more like him, who didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation so that we could be free. It was great to hear the other night at our partners meeting when we began to discuss together what our future as a church looks like and where our focus should be. The people were engaging in that conversation and talking about what they believed our focus should be. And one of the things which came out time and time again is that we need to have a real genuine pastoral focus as a church for those within the church that we look after one another, that we care for one another, that we love one another. And 
Guess what? I know what the answer to that is. You. You are the answer to us being focused on pastorally caring for one another. You are the answer to us being focused on seeing people's lives changed from within. You are the answer to the church being what the church should actually be. And as I close today, I want to challenge you and I challenge me too by simply asking this question, how are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ at the moment? How are we serving our brothers and our sisters in Christ? If the answer to that is, well, if I'm being honest, I'm not really. What one thing this week can you do to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, to love, and I mean to really love those in the family of God. Do good to all is what Paul said, but especially those in the household of believers. What difference can you make this week in their lives? Let's pray together. I'm going to invite the bands back up. Father God, we come before you as the church of Jesus Christ in this day and age, in 2020, Lord, on our knees in repentance. Lord, we come to you this morning and we say sorry for the times where we have acted selfishly, for the times where we have been more interested in our own needs than the needs of others. Lord, we pray that Hope Baptist Church, and actually the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide, will be a church which does good to 